We certainly appreciate the presence of everyone, and it is good to be present myself here after being gone uh, in a gospel meeting in uh, Union City, Tennessee last week. I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed being there with uh, brethren whom I had uh, not been privileged to meet and realizing there were brethren there whom I had known for years, going back to Knight Arnold Road in in Memphis, family there that uh, goes all the way back to my school days at uh, Memphis School of Preaching, but it was... uh, delight to be with a good congregation there. They love the truth and uh, they support the truth and it was good to uh, to be there. Uh, might update while I was there too, I was updated on Brett Rutherford whom uh, Steve mentioned and just to give you a little more information, I was able to communicate with Brett. Uh, uh, the uh, email, his email was passed along and we were told that if we wanted to email a message to him, it'd get to him in his hospital bed there, and sure enough, it did. And uh, he wrote back. I told him, of course, we'd been praying for him here, and, and uh, he wanted me to thank you, brethren, for, uh, for your prayers. They really just do not know what is happening with Brett. The uh, results were inconclusive on the biopsy. It's going to be some time before they can do another one because of the small amount of tissue they had uh, to work with. They do suspect lymphoma but uh, they cannot confirm that at this point in time. So uh, please continue to remember Brett and his family uh, in Australia, and of course Rod and Brenda uh, up in Gatlinburg uh, where Rod preaches. They live in the Knoxville area, but a uh, great family. Brother Kevin Rutherford, of course, is over in the St. Louis uh, area, congregation where he preaches overseas or support, I think overseas, the, uh, the, uh, the work that... Uh, uh, Jared's uh, sister and brother-in-law do in uh, in Australia. So these are good families. Uh, they're hurting now and struggling. And and uh, is it Tasmania? Uh, <laughs> Tasmania? Tanzania. Huh? Tanzania. Right? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's not Tasmania either, is it? That's right. <laughs> it's Tanzania. That's right. I'll be okay, maybe. <laughs> but we appreciate the work they're doing and... Uh, we want to continue to pray for this family. Our Ladies' Day is uh, coming up, and as Steve mentioned, uh, very exciting. They have 153, I think, officially who have committed uh, to be here, 152, 151. I'm getting signals all over the place here. and I'm <laughs> so, We have over 150, I know that. We have over 150 that are committed. So uh, this auditorium, it'll be interesting. Uh, I won't be here, of course, but... Uh, uh, I think Jan Jenkins is going to be taking some pictures, so we'll be able to see what the auditorium looks like with uh, uh, over 150 here, and uh, that'll give us some incentive to see what we'd like to see it look like every Sunday uh, here at uh, that kind of uh, number. But we appreciate all of those who are uh, involved in that. And of course, then our singing night, Sunday night, next Sunday uh, night, will be our worship and song uh, on the 30th uh, uh, as well. So we are... Uh, excited about uh, uh, what is taking place in the upcoming days here uh, at uh, White Oak. You know, sometimes um, we can't always be sure about uh, what someone has said or hasn't said, and we see quotes that seem to be authentic, and yet upon further examination and investigation, they turn out to be less than authentic. As we think about that, what about this statement that the Pope, Pope Francis, 
was reported to have made. And this was a widely circulated uh, quote. Through humility, soul searching, and prayerful contemplation, we have gained a new understanding of certain dogmas. The church no longer believes in a literal hell where people suffer. This doctrine is incompatible with the infinite love of God. God is not a judge, but a friend and a lover of humanity. God seeks not to condemn, but only to embrace. Like the fable of Adam and Eve, we see hell as a literary device. Hell is merely a metaphor for the isolated soul, which, like all souls, ultimately will be united in love with God. That's a statement attributed to Pope Francis. And further, this was attributed to him as well. All religions are true because they are true in the hearts of all those who believe in them. What other kind of truth is there? In the past, the church has been harsh on those it deemed morally wrong or sinful. Today, we no longer judge. Like a loving father, we never condemn our children. Our church is big enough for heterosexuals and homosexuals, for the pro-life and the pro-choice. For conservatives and liberals, even communists are welcome and have joined us. We all love and worship the same God. Did Pope Francis say that? Did he say this as well as a part of that widely circulated statement. Catholicism is now a modern and reasonable religion which has undergone evolutionary changes. The time has come to abandon all intolerance. We must recognize that religious truth evolves and changes. Truth is not absolute or set in stone. Even atheists acknowledge the divine. Through acts of love and charity, the atheist acknowledges God as well and redeems his own soul, becoming an active participant in the redemption of humanity. And did Pope Francis also say this? God is changing and evolving as we are, for God lives in us and in our hearts. When we spread love and kindness in the world, we touch our own divinity and recognize it. The Bible is a beautiful holy book, but like all great and ancient works, some passages are outdated. Some even call for intolerance or judgment. The time has come to see these verses as later interpolations, contrary to the message of love and truth, which otherwise radiates through Scripture. In accordance with our new understanding, we will begin to ordain women as cardinals, bishops, and priests. In the future, it is my hope that we will have a woman pope one day. Let no door be closed to women that is open to men. That was a widely circulated uh, statement, supposedly, from the fairly new pope of the Catholic religion, Pope Francis. He never said those things. He never said those things. Not, that is not a quote from him. It was a satirical uh, article that was circulated and was attributed to him, but he never said it. I received this from a brethren in another state without any, uh, without any caveat being uh, given. They obviously took it to be true, as did many others. Now, there's a lesson right here. Uh, that we need to appreciate, and that is that this kind of thing is happening on a fairly consistent basis at times with uh, reports that are circulated that are supposedly uh, accurate coming from reliable sources, and yet when they are investigated, they are found to be completely false. There's a website that, as far as I know, I could recommend to you as being a reliable place to check out these things, and that is Snopes. Dot com, S-N-O-P-E-S dot com. 
Uh, it was even reported, my wife told me recently, that someone had questioned whether Snopes.com was, was an accurate <laughs> website, but it turned out to be, I think, as far as we know. Anyway, but the point is this. These statements that I have just read were never made by Pope Francis. And so before we pass anything along, we do need to make as sure as possible that what we are passing along is uh, accurate. What if I had ultimately accepted that, never checked it to be sure, and had begun this lesson with that statement and then gone from there, as though Pope Francis had actually said these things? Some egg on my face, uh, in a sense, uh, for that. But having said that, let's see what Pope Francis has said since he has been Pope of the Catholic religion. This, I trust, from a reliable source, the UK Telegraph, the British publication, mentioned this, quote, Francis, who has won praise for spontaneous and unusual moves during his six-month papacy, wrote a lengthy letter to a newspaper La Repubblica, which the Italian Daily printed over four pages, including page one under the simple byline, Francesco. Here's the quote. God forgives those who obey their conscience, he wrote. In the unprecedented letter, the latest example of the markedly different tone and style from his predecessors that he has set since being elected in March. There's no question that the Pope has said some things that have become quite controversial even among uh, those who embrace Catholicism. This goes on to include a further quote from Pope Francis. The question for those who do not believe in God is to follow their own conscience. Sin, even for a non-believer, is when one goes against one's conscience. To listen and to follow your conscience means that you understand the difference between good and evil. The Telegraph also quoted Francis as saying, the mercy of God has no limits. And so there are some things that can be documented that have been said that have raised some eyebrows even among those who are devout Catholics. But I have said all that to say this. From whence did the papacy itself Arise. From whence did the concept of, of the papacy arise? You may remember that a few weeks ago we presented a lesson along this theme, passages people pervert. And on that occasion we looked at Mark chapter 16 verses 17 through 20. And there was some current news at that time about the handling of serpents in religious practice and the death of a, a preacher in Middlesbrough, Kentucky who had died from rattlesnake bite and had refused treatment. And as we looked at that passage that could have prevented that death and others that have occurred tragically because of the perversion of that text and the belief, mistaken belief, that God wants us to pick up poisonous snakes today, we saw how tragic indeed it is when people pervert the scriptures. Today we look at another one of those perversions that has led 
to the papacy, to the existence of one who claims to be the earthly head of the church, the visible head, the vicar of Christ. And of course, the key text upon which we base these lessons as we look at these passages from time to time is found in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Let's review that. Peter writes, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, is written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Didn't say they were impossible to understand. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, as the New King James renders it. The King James says rest. The idea is twist. They pervert, that's the idea. Perversion of certain passages leads to tragedy, religiously, spiritually, beyond description. And today we examine, as kindly as we can, another one of those perversions and the tragedy to which it has led. Matthew 16, 18 and 19. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's the passage, the perversion of which has led to the papacy. To get the context more fully, we go back to verse 13 here and see that when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now we're back to Matthew 16, 18, and 19. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the text. The proof text for the papacy, if you will. It is the text that those who embrace this belief look to as the authority for an earthly head, the vicar of Christ, here on earth. Does this text in any way, shape, form, or fashion authorize such? We just want to examine it and see the perversion and plead with those who have brought into that perversion to see what the Bible actually teaches on this subject, as we do on any subject for that matter. And so the first thing we observe as we analyze the text when Jesus says, you are Peter. Peter is from a word that simply means A stone. You are a stone. A detached stone. Something that 
man would be capable of throwing, as we talk about throwing a rock. But when he says, after saying, you are Peter, and upon this rock, there's where the initial perversion occurs, because that is attributed to Peter. This rock, that is, is the expression that many mistakenly attribute to Peter. In other words, that Jesus was saying, you are Peter, and upon you, Peter, this rock, I will build my church. That's an impossibility. It's an impossibility from the text itself because the phrase, this rock, translates from another word that means a bed rock. It has been described or defined as a mass of connected rock, not a detached stone, as is the case with Peter, but a mass of connected rock, a bedrock, a solid foundation, or a large foundation. Therefore, you're talking about apples and oranges when you say that Peter and this rock or try to say that they're the same thing. You're trying to compare an apple to an orange. They're totally, they're totally different. But beyond that, the gender is different. Peter, the stone, is masculine gender. Well, that's what we would expect it to be. Peter is a man. That's clear. You are Peter. You are a stone, the meaning of the word, but it's masculine gender. But in the original language in which the New Testament was written, rock happens to have been assigned a feminine gender. That's just the way it is in that language. But it's not masculine. It is feminine. So we have Petros with Peter and Petra with rock. Two totally different genders, two totally different meanings, one being a stone, the other, this rock, being a large connected mass of rock. How could Jesus then be saying, you are Peter and upon you, Peter, I will build my church. And yet that's the premise upon which the papacy came into existence and is perpetuated today. But what the Lord was saying was, you are Peter, a small stone, or a stone, and upon this rock, a large foundation stone, I will build my church. That explanation in itself should be enough to cause people who have embraced the perversion to stop cold in their tracks, as it were, spiritually, and re-examine the entire matter. Beyond this, in the same context, in the next verse, Jesus said, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, the perversion of the text would tell us that Peter has these keys. That is, he has authority. That it is a perpetual authority that it is a matter of succession from one pope to the next pope to the next pope, and that there is authority to bind on earth. And when the pope speaks ex cathedra, 
that is from the chair, literally is what that expression means, then that is heaven's will. That's heaven's will. So while the Pope, the present Pope, did not say those things initially that we began with this morning, had he said them, the expectation among followers of that religion would have been, that's heaven's will. If he gave that ex cathedra from the chair, because that is the conviction of those who embrace that. Sincerely, we do not doubt that, not at all. What we're examining this morning is what the Bible clearly teaches versus what man has perverted and taught and what many sincere, honest people have embraced. Not only with this particular belief, but with others we are not considering this morning. Now I want you to think about something here with me in the latter part of this text. When Jesus says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, first of all, in the first part of that text, the keys to the kingdom of heaven had to do with the terms of admission that were first used on Pentecost. When Peter and the other apostles preached, granted Peter's sermon, a portion of it, is recorded for us by inspiration in the New Testament. And so Peter had a wonderful opportunity, but the other apostles did as well, to use the keys to the kingdom. But his sermon is recorded a portion of it. Then you remember at the household of Cornelius, as recorded in Acts 10, it was Peter who was given the privilege, privilege there to use the keys to the kingdom, the terms of admission, to bring the Gentiles into covenant relationship. But Peter had no special authority while he lived among the other apostles. And the other apostles were equal in their responsibility and their work in terms of their preaching. Given different particular assignments at times, as with Peter being given the privilege to open the door of faith to the Gentiles, as he explained in Acts 15 when he explained to those at Jerusalem about their conversion. But his authority did not exceed the authority of any other apostle. And if you recall, the apostle who became an apostle, born out of due season, as he expressed it in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul said, I am not one whit behind any of the others. If Peter had a supremacy over the other apostles that continues to this day in time through his successors, Paul knew nothing about it. In fact, expressed just the opposite. And so many other statements could be cited to lend credence to the truth that we're expressing here in this text today. But in the latter part, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It's interesting that the will be bound literally is, because of the perfect tense that is used, is will have been bound. And that is also true of will be loosed. It is in the perfect tense, meaning will have been loosed. So what was the Lord saying? Peter, when you and the other apostles bind something upon men through your teaching and preaching and through your writing, which we have today, 
That will not be some new thing that you have originated. That will be what has been revealed to you which has already been bound in heaven. It will be the will of heaven that is being revealed to you. And Brandon this morning in his outstanding presentation made this abundantly clear. Brought in passages that fit so beautifully with what I intended to say and intend to say now. Look at John 14, 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. Now let's stop and ask you who? The apostles. In John chapters 14, 15, and 16, these are addresses that have specific and particular application, so much of it, to the apostles and have absolutely nothing to do with you or with me. I have never been promised, nor will I ever be promised, nor will you ever be promised to be guided into all truth. That was a promise that was given within these chapters 14, 15, 16 of John to a specific group of individuals who were despondent over the imminent departure of their Savior, who said to them at the beginning of this treatise in John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And then a little bit later on, we have these verses before us. These things, he said, I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, as the New King James renders it, as Brandon pointed out this morning, that's comforter in the King James, but it's from that original word paraclete, which is also translated advocate. The helper, who is the helper? The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, the apostles, all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Has Jesus ever said anything to you personally? Have you ever been with Jesus and had him say anything to you? Have I? Of course not. Therefore, obviously, the context from the passage is to the apostles. It's to the apostles. He will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. As Brandon pointed out this morning so eloquently, it is the case that they didn't have to worry about what they were going to say when they were called before kings and governors and other leaders. The Holy Spirit was there beside them as their comforter, as their helper, as their advocate. That's John 14, 25 and 26. You go over one chapter to John 15, 26, and again, here is the emphasis. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And then John 16, the next chapter, verse 13. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will tell you things to come promise after promise after promise in these three chapters clearly to the apostles and to the apostles alone but not to Peter alone and not a promise of 
the perpetuation of power and authority beyond the guidance into all truth. There was a specific time that was coming when all that truth would be revealed and then there would be no need for further revelation. There would be no need for the comforter in the sense in which he was promised initially to the apostles in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Did Jesus, through the Spirit, do what he promised that he would do for the apostles? Did he guide them into all truth? If not, he failed in his promise. Has deity ever failed in a promise? Never. Therefore, we conclude, he guided them into all truth. Where is that truth today? As we have so often said, it is recorded for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit upon the pages of the New Testament. Now, I want you to notice something else that's very significant in relation to the so-called supremacy of Peter as the first pope and therefore the perpetuation of popes all going back to Peter. On one occasion in Matthew 19, 27 and 28, Peter answered and said to him, I think it's interesting that Peter's the one that came up with this question. Peter answered and said to him, to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Isn't that an interesting question in light of the very issue that we're addressing today? Would this not have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to have said to Peter in answer to his question, I'll tell you what you're going to have, Peter. You are going to be the first pope, and there will be a succession of popes from you. That's the kind of supremacy that you're going to have. But was that the Lord's response? No. So Jesus said to them, them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Peter asked the question. The answer came to all the apostles, and the answer was this. You will have equal authority, equal authority, in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory and you will be judging spiritual Israel. That is the meaning, obviously, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Spiritual Israel. That's the church. How is it that the apostles are sitting on 12 thrones judging the church or spiritual Israel today? Through this book, which is complete and whole, because Jesus' promise was fulfilled to the apostles to guide them and the other inspired writers into all truth. And so their writings today, their work today in written form, guides us and directs us. But now there are those who say the regeneration is not the present age, that that's, that's eternity. I don't believe so. There's only one other time 
in Scripture where this word, the same word regeneration, is used. And that's in Titus 3. Let's look at that passage in Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves, Paul writes, were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, listen to it, through the washing of regeneration, that's baptism, and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The only other time the word regeneration is used is right here in Titus 3. It refers to the washing of regeneration, which is baptism, which is now part of the Christian age, through which and by which we become Christians based upon a belief that leads us to repent, confess, and then to be buried in baptism. That's the washing of regeneration by the teaching of the Holy Spirit that puts us into Christ, where he now sits on the throne of his glory and reigns over us, just as the Hebrews writer declared it in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the throne of his glory. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He'll sit there on the throne of his glory. He will be on the throne of his glory, reigning over his kingdom in this, the period of regeneration, the Christian age, until the end comes, as 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26 declares, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign where? On the throne of his glory, till he has put all things or enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death and when that happens the period of regeneration is over and any possibility of undergoing the washing of regeneration and being baptized into Christ will be ended and we will be in the judgment when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him then he will sit on the throne of his glory does that mean he'll begin sitting on the throne of his glory is that what the passage teaches absolutely not he will sit on the throne of his glory then as judge. That's all the passage is saying. It will be time then for him to judge on the throne of his glory. He's reigning on the throne of his glory now. But then he will sit there to judge all mankind. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Until that time comes... As long as we're in the period of regeneration, what is it that we must heed? Is it the voice from the chair, ex cathedra? Or is it the voices from the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel now through the word of God? The answer is obvious. And Jesus made it abundantly clear. When he said, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. 
the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Where is that word? It is here in its complete final form. And the apostles, not one above the others, but the apostles through that word are judging the 12 tribes of Israel just as Jesus promised them they would. And his word that has been recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and their word, all that God wanted us to have is here for us. Able, as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, to guide us to every good work. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, he wrote, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Nothing more to come after this came. Nothing more to be said. Nothing more to be determined. It is simply to be obeyed. Have you obeyed it this morning? Have you expressed your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the only head of the church who reigns in heaven now over his spiritual body, the kingdom, the church of our Lord? Have you believed in him as that head, as the Christ, the Son of the living God? Have you repented of your sins, confessed him to be the Christ, and have you undergone the washing of regeneration, that is, baptism for the forgiveness of your sins? That's what his word has told us. That's what we must do. Believe or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Repent or perish, Luke 13, 3. Confess me and I'll confess you, Matthew 10, 32. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. That word will never change. Nothing any man on earth ever says will change anything that has been finally recorded and approved by heaven in this, the New Testament. Will you obey it? You may need to come home to your first love as a wayward child this morning. If that's your need, we plead with you to do that now. And to confess, I have sinned, pray with me and for me. And if your sin has been public in nature, it needs to be confessed that way. And we'll pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who will forgive. As we stand to sing, will you come? <clears throat>